Crowds can be fickle. Ask anyone in the public arena. They cheer you one minute and they boo you the next. Throw a touchdown pass and you're the talk of the town. And then the next week, throw a couple of interceptions and the intellectuals on sports talk radio want you run out of town. Jesus experienced the fickleness of the crowd, but on a far more serious plane. On Palm Sunday that we celebrate today, they cheered him, they welcomed him as a hero, one that would deliver them from Roman oppression. But less than a week later, many of these same people demanded his execution. Crucify him, crucify him. They screamed in their madness. Several weeks later, speaking to many of the people in this same group, the Apostle Peter courageously proclaimed, This man, speaking of Jesus, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up, putting again an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. The week before the Passover, in the spring of A.D. 30, that particular week saw a great many people, a great many pilgrims, descend upon the city of Jerusalem. These were pilgrims who were following the prescriptions of the law to gather at temple and celebrate the events that marked their rescue from Egypt, but also to celebrate the spiritual deliverance from sin that they enjoyed. That week in Jerusalem, there was a lot of excitement. There was excited talk of a hero, a Messiah who had come, Jesus the prophet from Nazareth, who would free Israel from Roman bondage. And the Jews were ready for a hero at that point. They had been under bondage for quite some time. They were ready, though, for a political deliverer. Unfortunately, they weren't ready for a spiritual deliverer. They didn't see the need. They saw the need for political deliverance. That's easy to see. All of us can observe that. And Jesus did come and make a legitimate offer of the kingdom. What they missed, even Jesus' disciples missed, was that the cross had to come before the crown. Without spiritual deliverance, Political deliverance really doesn't mean all that much. I know a lot of people in today's culture, in our own country, complain about people who occupy different offices, the executive branch, the legislative branch, Congress, the Senate. And we complain very loudly about these individuals. But what we forget is those individuals that were, were elected. Those, those individuals receive the majority of votes. In order to change anything politically, you have to change spiritually first. And that doesn't matter whether you're talking about Israel in AD 30 or the United States in the year 2012. Without spiritual deliverance, political deliverance is not as powerful as we would like it to be. And we need to remember that in this election year. Does it mean that political deliverance matters not? Of of course that's not the case. Of course it matters. Jesus will deliver politically at a later time, in what we call the millennium, in the second advent. He's going to come as a warrior. First time he comes as a lamb. Second time as a warrior to deliver Israel politically. 
But we must remember that spiritual deliverance has to come first. The crown must precede the cross. When they welcomed Jesus that day on Palm Sunday, they welcomed him with shouts of Hosanna, which literally translated means something like, save us now. Following a reception like that, most people would have been impressed. Most of our own heads would have been swollen over the approbation, but not Jesus. Jesus wept because he knew what was in their hearts. He knew how misguided they were. They wanted him, but they wanted him for the wrong reasons. Max Lucado wrote, a man who wants to lead the orchestra must turn his back on the crowd. And in essence, that's exactly what Jesus did. He knew his mission, and he was determined to do what he came to do. Yes, he would one day bring the crown, but not this day, not this week. When he was arrested a few days later, he did not resist. When they beat him, he did not retaliate. When they spit upon him, he did not fight back. When they ridiculed him, he did not respond. As the sun peaked over the horizon on what was arguably to be the most important day in human history, our Lord was tied to a stake, stripped down naked, and savagely beaten. This time not with fists as they had during the arrests, but with leather cords interwoven with sharp pieces of stone and of metal. When the Roman soldiers finished with him that morning, he was a breath away from death. Most of his back was gone the flesh having been torn away by the metal and the stone. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who ordered this atrocity, really didn't want to crucify Jesus. In fact, that's why he did it. He wanted to brutalize him, bring him back before the crowd, say, Ece homo, behold the man, and hopefully the crowd would say, that's enough. That's all, that's all we need to see. But they didn't do that. In Pilate's mind, he was caught between the proverbial rock and the hard place. Let Jesus go and the crowd's going to turn on him. But crucify him and his conscience would turn upon him. When they ran the nails through Jesus' hands and feet and hoisted the cross, there he was, the Lord of the universe, hanging naked on a piece of wood that he created, having been lifted there by men to whom he had given life. By the way, he could have taken their lives with a simple thought, just a thought that would have passed through his soul, and it would have all been over. There would have been no crucifixion. There would have been no nails piercing hands and feet. There would have been no more ridicule. But there would also have been no salvation. When Jesus came to that climactic point in his earthly life, he said yes to the Father. 
As all this was happening, Jesus made his first saying on the cross, which is one of the most remarkable. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. No threats, no defiant words, just a plea for forgiveness. Matthew records that both of the criminals who were crucified with Jesus insulted him. But while the first of the criminals continued this verbal barrage, the other criminal next to Jesus had a change of heart. In Luke chapter 23, we find the second saying of Jesus recorded. As he says to this man, after the man says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, Today you'll be with me in paradise. This man is hanging on a cross just like Jesus. It's a different crucifixion. This man was a criminal. Jesus was innocent. This man deserved it. Jesus did not. But he couldn't rescue himself. I want you to notice that. This man was not in a position to be baptized, to attend temple worship. He wasn't in a position to give any money. He was in a position to exercise faith, and that's what he did. Faith alone and the only one that could save him. And he recognized in his moment of need that Jesus was the answer to his problem. Now, he waited to the last minute. And I hope if you're here this morning and you've never personally trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life, you won't wait till you're hours away from death. I would pray that you would do it now. I, w- I would pray that you would realize that the things that we talk about this morning made possible me telling you this morning that all you need to do is exercise faith in Jesus Christ. When a Philippian jailer asked the Apostle Paul, what do I need to do to be saved? Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Pretty simple. But the reason it's simple for Paul to say that to the Philippian jailer and for me to tell you that this morning is because Jesus did all the work. He is the one that was scourged. He is the one that was crucified. He is the one that didn't fight back when he had every opportunity and the ability to do so. No baptism, no good works, nothing. Just faith that Jesus was indeed the covenant of the Messiah to Israel. And in some way, this man wasn't well versed theologically, but in some way had the ability to deliver him to heaven. I want you to notice something here, too. There's a lot of questions that come up when somebody dies, when a loved one dies. And perhaps you've had a loved one that's gone home to be with the Lord recently, and you wonder this yourself. Is that loved one actually with the Lord, or are they asleep until the rapture? That's an older theology, the theology of soul sleep. It goes back to the early 1900s. It's not so popular today, but sometimes these theologies make a comeback, and I'm starting to hear more of it. Jesus doesn't tell this man, at the resurrection, you'll be with me in paradise. He tells this man, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Not tomorrow, not the next day, not when I come back with my kingdom, not when the church is resurrected, but today you'll be with me in paradise. So I can tell you, with complete confidence, that those of you that have loved ones that have preceded you in death, and they've trusted Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life, I can tell you with the confidence of the Word of God that they are in a place right now of extreme bliss and happiness, 
fully conscious. In fact, more acutely conscious than they ever were in their best moment in life. And extremely happy and waiting on you to get there. Now, it's my opinion, since I do believe that there is time in heaven, by the way. I think it's, it's actually inappropriate to say there's no time in heaven. Because time, philosophically, is measured by a sequence of events. And there are sequences of events in heaven. It's just a different kind of time. It's not a 24-hour day in heaven. And in heaven, apparently, this is in heaven and with the Lord, a, a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day. This is just my opinion, but I've kind of worked this out logically in my soul. Those that get there ahead of us, while we might wait 20, 25 years, and however many sunrises and sunsets that is here on earth, it's not the same for them. I believe it's almost as if they would have gotten there, they get shown around, and someone taps them on the shoulder and said, there she is. There's your wife. There he is. There's the kids. I don't, I don't think they're suffering up there waiting for us in the same way that we wait to see them again. Today you'll be with me in paradise, Jesus says. Then the third saying comes from John chapter 19, verse 26. This apparently happened a short time later. Remember there was only one disciple at the cross, and that was the disciple John, later the apostle John. I suspect, although I can't prove it, I can't wait to get to heaven to ask him if he'll let me. <laughs> I suspect Peter was somewhere watching. Somewhere where he could get a view of the events. Perhaps on the city wall. But John was there, and John was there with Jesus' mother and some of the other women. The other women weren't a threat to the Romans. They wouldn't have minded them being there. And remember, it wasn't like that there were, were bleachers that were many, many feet away the women would have been as close as I am to this front row today. And Jesus looks down at his mother, and he says, Woman, behold thy son, and then behold thy mother. What he's doing with this third saying on the cross is he's seeing to the care of his mother after he goes. That's a loving and a kind thing to do. We have somewhat of an analogy to that today when we make out a will or when we take out a life insurance policy or and when we set aside investments to help take care of our family after we're gone at least people who love their families do now i know one pantheist who's a friend of mine a pantheist is one who doesn't believe in an infinite personal god but believes that the universe with a capital u is god and god is everywhere not just everywhere present but but in everything god is in this book he's in these flowers he's in my coat he's in me he's in you and since he's in all of us, everything is God. It's a, it's a strange kind of thing, but most Eastern philosophies are based upon pantheism. My friend told me straight out, so I'm not going to get a life insurance policy for my wife. She's on her own after I die. Whoa. Have you talked to her about that? <laughs> That's not a very loving thing to do. And I'm not saying all pantheists are that way, but my friend the pantheist was. But Jesus is making sure his mother is taken care of, and he turns the care of his mother over to the Apostle John. Now, one may wonder, why didn't Jesus turn the care of his mother over to one of his brothers? He had several. The best I can figure is that his brothers weren't saved at this time. We know that they were saved later. So I think Jesus is turning the care of his mother over to someone who's also a member of the family with a capital F, the family of God. When he says, woman, behold thy son, that's bothered some people from time to time. Jesus uses the Greek word, gune. Now, whether he was speaking Greek at that point or whether he was speaking Aramaic, it's 
not significant to me because it's recorded in Greek. This is what the Holy Spirit wanted us to understand. And, and I don't know about you, but if I would have at any point in my life called my mother woman, <laughs> I probably would have received no more chocolate cookies on my birthday. Probably been the end of it. And probably a stiff word, too. Because that's not the custom I call her mom. That's what I call my mother. I can only imagine if my boys called their mother woman, what would happen. But this was, this was not insulting in any way. Gune was the common form of address for an older son to address his mother. So it wasn't, it wasn't in any way derogatory. If it would have been, it would have been a sin, don't you see? Because it's one of the commandments to honor your mother and father. So, of course, Jesus wasn't being dishonorable to his mother. This is the normal form of address. Mary is a unique character. She had the unique privilege of bearing the Christ child. She was not the co-redeemer, as some have taught over the course of history. Mary would have been aghast had she known that that would be ascribed to her later. She knew that she wasn't in any way the Redeemer, that, his, that her son was doing all the work, and she had known that for a long time. But here she is, with tears running down her cheeks, with the women that are there to support her with tears running down their cheeks. And these women stand in stark contrast to the soldiers that are present at that moment who are gambling for Jesus' clothes and ridiculing him and mocking him at the same time. While the soldiers carry out the barbaric task and they gamble without apology for our Lord's outer garment, the women wait in faithful devotion to the one whose death they cannot understand at this point as anything but a tragedy. Mary, Jesus' mother, knows the theology behind what's going on here. She's known it for a long time, all of Jesus' life. But I doubt at this point that she was thinking of the doctrine of unlimited atonement or propitiation or even reconciliation. Rather, she watched in horror as she saw her son brutalized by godless men and I'm sure that there were more than just a few flashbacks to times earlier, more pleasant times when she took care of him as a child. But she had also been told when Jesus is scarcely a week old that her soul would one day be pierced. He'll be pierced. But your soul will be pierced, Mary. And oh yes, it was on this very day. In the first three statements... Our Lord first expresses his grace when he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Second, he demonstrates that no one is too evil to go to heaven, provided they exercise faith in the right object. And third, he sees to the continuing care of his mother. At 12 noon, Luke chapter 23, verse 44 tells us that darkness fell over the whole land. From that time until approximately 3 o'clock in the afternoon. One wonders why that is the case. But the real work of salvation began about noon. In some way that I can't really explain to you, the prophet Isaiah includes the beatings into the saving work of Christ on the cross. 
And I'm still in my mind haven't exactly figured out how all that is, is categorized. It's all one big package in, in Isaiah's mind. But up until now, have you noticed Jesus hasn't screamed out. The, the, the Bible never records anywhere up until this point that Jesus screamed, not with the scourgings, not when the nails pierced his hands and his feet, not when they put that wicked crown of thorns on his head, mashed it in, no screams. But here, Jesus will begin to scream. Here is when Jesus is going to have the wrath of God that was due you and me poured out upon him. And I think that's why God turned out the lights. And he said, in, in essence, okay, this part you don't get to watch. You may can listen to part of it, but you don't get to watch this part because this is between me and my son. And so in essence, he turned off the lights and through the darkness, a scream pierced the silence. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. The Greek text allows that this was very possibly said over and over again. And it's translated into English, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He screamed. The question was, of course, rhetorical. He knew the answer. He knew that he was being forsaken because he who knew no sin was being made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Here Jesus enters what we call spiritual death, I guess for lack of a better term, but spiritual death. I was recently contacted by some people from another city. They wanted me to come to their church and explain this thing of spiritual death. We don't understand that. Explain exactly what people, theologians mean when they say that. It's going to be a short sermon. The wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus Christ on the cross, and in some way he was forsaken by the Father. There was some separation that took place between two eternal beings. I can't explain that. This is between Father and Son, son and, I, and I hate to use that theological word, ineffable, because it's used too much, but it means it's unexplainable. This is personal between father and son. And the reason I stress this this morning is because the longer we've been Christians, the less personal this seems to become to us. It seems just to be things that we talk about at certain times of the year and then we shut it off and we don't even think about it until later. I think that's why God himself, Jesus Christ himself, instituted this ceremony, the celebration that we'll participate in shortly. So that we would remember him. We'd be given an opportunity to remember him and what he did for us regularly. So when we start getting all bent out of shape as to the lot in life that God gave us. We don't have the house we want to have. We don't drive the car we, we want to drive. Our stock portfolio is not doing as well as we want it to do. It's too hot. It's too cold. It's too windy. It's too calm. God says, hey, stop, sport. Think about my son for just a minute. Think about that scream for just a minute, because that scream was for you. It should have been you and me on, on a cross. Every one of us should have, should have been on a cross. The problem is, if we had paid the penalty for our own sins, when God got finished with us, there would have been nothing left to save. Jesus took the wrath of God that was due to us. That means he died as a substitute for us. 
He was punished in our place. Theologically, we call this a substitutionary atonement. Paul talked about it in the book of Romans, his letter to the Romans. But God demonstrates, notice the present tense. This is a continual demonstration. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or perhaps he died on our behalf. Or maybe even he died as a substitute for us. The scream pierced the darkness. That period lasts for approximately three hours. From noon to three. Why God chose three hours to pour out his wrath upon his son, I don't know. That had to be the longest three hours anybody's ever experienced. After these three hours are over, Jesus says, according to the Gospel of John, chapter 19, he said, I thirst. An apparent reference to Psalm chapter 69, verse 21. Yes, he was thirsty. He had been on the cross for six hours now. He had endured a period of brutal beating beforehand. His body was severely dehydrated. He had a loss of fluid from sweat, a loss of fluid from blood. Someone offered him at this point a sponge that was full of GI wine or vinegar wine on a branch and wet his lips with it, just wet his mouth. And I've often wondered why this was so important for John to record. And when I think of what Jesus said next, then I understand why his mouth had to be moistened. Because the next thing he says on the cross is one word that is translated into three in English, tetelestai. Meaning, it is finished. What Jesus came to do had been accomplished. Jesus had completed the work that had been decreed in eternity past. And in a broader theological context... The entirety of the work of salvation was completed. And there's nothing that can be added to it. Can you imagine for a moment what God must think when he hears people preach today, and a great many people preach it, whole denominations preach it, that yes, salvation is by grace through faith, but it's also your works that count. And God must be sitting up there anthropomorphically, I'm speaking now, and saying, are they out of their mind? Do they not know what I did for them? And they want to add something to it. They want to go to church. They want to give me money. And they think they can add to the death of my son on the cross. Salvation by grace through faith plus works is an abomination. It is not Christianity. And it is an insult to the God who judged the son on the cross and to the son who was judged. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. Jesus Christ did all the work. He said, it is finished. He could have said, I finished it. What I set out to do has been completed. And don't you ever try to add anything to it. You may ask, well, where do good works come in? Because the Bible speaks a lot about good works. In fact, in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Paul says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But then in the very next verse, he says, but we were created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works. So, of course, good works are legitimate. Work's not a bad four-letter word in Christianity. It's a good four-letter word. But works come after salvation, not for 
salvation and never to pay him back. Never for one minute. Believe when you put money into an offering plate or support a missionary or pray for one or go on a mission trip yourself or serve around the church or put chairs up, whatever it may be, that you're doing anything to earn your salvation or to pay God back for it. Never. If we lived a thousand eternities, if there was such a thing, you couldn't begin to pay him back. It's finished. This is actually the second time this phrase has been used. The first time was in John 17, before the cross. Jesus said, I've finished the work that God has sent me to do. And that's a head-scratcher. What does he mean by that? He hadn't gone to the cross yet. There he's speaking of the work of revealing the Father to mankind. That was finished before the cross. This is the second it is finished. The payment Jesus made was to satisfy the Father. And it was for all sins committed by all men. No sin was left out. Not Moses' anger, or David's adultery, or Paul's persecution of Christians, or whatever's in your mind right now that you've done. He paid for that one. Yes, he paid for that one too. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross, therefore, renders all men savable. It doesn't save anyone in and of itself, but it renders all men savable. Christ paid the penalty for all, but that penalty has not been applied to any individual until that individual accepts the free gift by grace through faith. Until you do that, you remain, to use biblical terminology, dead in your trespasses and sins. Luke chapter 23, verse 46 reveals the final words that Jesus spoke on the cross. It's a quotation of the first half of Psalm 31. He said, Father, into your hands I dismiss my spirit. All having been accomplished, Jesus simply exhaled and allowed his spirit to rejoin the Father. Christ died because by an act of his will he dismissed his spirit from his body. Christ was sovereign over his death as he was sovereign over his resurrection. For the Christian, the remembrance of this event should cause the most profound humility to flood our souls. And it should motivate us to serve him with an intensity like never before. Once again, not to pay him back for what he's done, but rather to demonstrate in a small way our appreciation for what he did for us in love. Richard Niebuhr once wrote that what mankind seems to be looking for is a God without wrath who took man without sin into a kingdom without righteousness through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. My friends, it doesn't work that way. The problem of sin and its consequences are very real. And there was only one way for God to accomplish our salvation. It was not through military might or through political persuasiveness, not through self-willed personal transformation or positive thinking, but through the power of the cross.